The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain, and we are of all people most to be pitied. But think about the implications if Jesus really did rise from the dead. We look on in our world and we experience the great pain and heartache of this world. Some of us, as we just watch what's going on, so, so you look out at headlines, you look at the suffering of people all around the world, you look and you say, it's a broken world. And some of us, that pain is really deep and personal. It's something we feel and we feel bound up in that pain. And you try and make sense of this world and then Christianity comes along and says, here's how to make sense of this world. It's a mess right now because way back at the beginning, man rebelled against God. And in rebelling against God, the consequences of that rebellion was, were death and all, all that goes with that. So disease, strife, bitterness, suffering, various kinds. So you, you have this this concoction of man's rebellion and the death that comes with it. That is what is the the dark reign over the earth. And that message of Christianity says, but you know what? This world isn't where it's at. This is just a little precursor, a little preview for the real world that's to come. God is in the midst of designing the best possible world for his people to live in. And in order to have the best possible world over here, we have to go through this little blip of time where we experience the brokenness of a world in rebellion against God so that we can see and taste all the sweeter, the goodness of the world to come. This is what the Bible is saying and how we're to process that. Now, that's just this nice little story. Oh yeah, this, little, this world we live in is just a little blip. Uh-huh, Sure. Again, mass placebo effect. Let's all feel a little bit better about the suffering we're in. Unless Jesus rose from the dead. Because of a man, not just had a near-death experience, you know, his heart stopped beating for a few minutes, but somebody actually rose from the dead, never to die again, conquered death, then the whole, our whole understanding of what's going on is turned on its head, and the Christian message is validated. Because what Jesus said he was doing when he died on the cross was taking on our sin, breaking the power of sin, that is man's rebellion. He's taking that upon himself. He is making atonement, paying the price for that sin. He's saying, I did that on the cross. And so then when he dies and he rises up, he shows that he conquered sin because if sin is conquered, then death is conquered. And so the whole story is true. Everything that the Bible is putting forth is demonstrably true by the resurrection. And then his promise of this new kingdom coming that will only be available to perfect people can come about because through his death, he allows my sin to be forgiven. And by the power he has over that sin, 
He allows for a, a change in my own heart where I can be transformed, made new, born again. If, if Jesus really did rise from the dead. It's either all a big charade, a big game that we're all playing because he didn't rise from the dead. Or it's all true. And there's hope in this world. And there's hope for me who has that same brokenness and reign of sin in my own heart. So you can't leave here this morning content to be neutral on the point. You can't come into this room as a Christian who doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection and think, that's okay, I'll leave here and I'll keep embracing the nice ideals of Christianity because I can see the good it has and I'll remain neutral on the point. And you can't have walked in here as an unbeliever and said, it's okay, I don't have to make a decision on that. I know some people feel strongly this way, some people feel strongly that way. I don't need to resolve that, no. You can't leave here content to be neutral on the point. And Matthew knows that the stakes are high. That's why he sandwiches the ten verses that describe the resurrection with verses at the beginning and the end that are a defense of the reliability of the resurrection. And so let's look, let's look at those, those sandwich sections first. So we're going to look at uh, 20, or chapter 27, verses 62 to 66, and then we'll look at 28, 11 to 15. First, before we get to the middle part where the resurrection is actually talked about. So the front side, verses 62 to 66. Jesus has been taken down dead from the cross. He's been placed in a prominent tomb that everyone would have been able to find, know where it is. The wealthy religious leaders given up his tomb for it. And then a thought strikes the Jewish leaders. They remember a word Jesus said, said repeatedly. He had talked about how he was going to die, and he talked about how on the third day he was going to rise. And they start thinking, uh oh. What happens if his disciples sneak in and steal the body and then go around telling everybody that he's alive? It'll just strengthen the case for everything he said. So the lie he's, they think, the lie he initially told will only be strengthened now with the second lie. What are we going to do about it? Now it says there, um, in verse 62, after the day of preparation, that's the day of preparation for the Sabbath. So this is the Sabbath day. You remember these religious leaders, what they told Jesus about working on the Sabbath or doing anything of import on the Sabbath? They were very anti that, right? They their strict rules. But now this, this is important. We need to, on the Sabbath day, march into Pilate's headquarters and have a little council and do our work. And so they gather around with Pilate and they present their case. They say, we need to do two things to make sure that there's no second fraud. The first thing we need to do is appoint some soldiers to go there to stand guard. The second thing we need to do is seal the tomb, likely with a a sealing wax that would have had a seal on it. So it would have shown if it had been broken into. The funny thing is, 
think about who these Pharisees are worried about. They're worried about the disciples. What do we know is happening with the disciples right now? Well, the treasurer of the twelve is dead because he had taken a bounty, he had accepted the bounty money to turn Jesus over to the religious authorities, and then he felt guilty about it. Or take kind of the ringleader, Peter. The ringleader of the disciples had just sworn that he had no association with this man to a servant girl. And the rest, they'd scattered, they were cowering, they were hiding. But they might sneak up and steal this body. You wonder why these Pharisees are so paranoid, are so bound and determined to make sure that this voice is silenced. Now, I'll say, their plan's actually a great plan. The soldiers of that day were well-trained. They were appointed to guard. Whatever they were appointed to guard, they would keep a, a diligent watch on whatever was going on. And that sealing wax, you would know, if that wax had been broken, you'd know somebody broke in, right? It's clear. There can't be any foul play. Of course, the only way their plan backfires is if Jesus actually rises from the dead, right? I mean, if he does rise from the dead, it's not just a little backfire, it's like big backfire. Now their actions actually help prove his resurrection because it's much harder to claim that a guarded and sealed tomb has been broken into by disciples and a body stolen. Interestingly, then, these religious leaders who'd set out to prove Jesus a fraud end up aiding the proof of his actual resurrection by their actions. Now, before I go on to uh, the second part, verses 11 to 15 and 28, I want to I say something here. Uh, because I know that there are people in this room, of course, that aren't looking at the Bible as the infallible word of God. And you're trying to make sense of all this, and you're saying, yeah, well, that's what Matthew said, but that's not really what happened. Even if you just look at this document as kind of a a historical human document, Matthew wrote into the first, first century, and his desire was to give answers to the church to the very arguments that the religious leaders of their day were putting forth against Christianity. So whether it's the Bible or not, whether it's God's word or not, that's what's going on here, right? And so you can tell by looking at the things that Matthew feels he needs to address, you can kind of figure out what kind of claims and issues were being raised by the Jewish leaders and other political leaders of that day. And it's clear that they were not questioning whether there was a guard. They're admitting that there was a guard. What they were doing is was suggesting that the guards had fallen asleep and Jesus' body was stolen while they slept. Now think about it. It might have been convenient for them to just deny that there was even a guard there in the first place, that there was a sealed tomb. But they'd paraded out on a Sabbath day. They'd made a big show of things. They had a 
this well-known tomb, or at least fairly well-known tomb, had these guards stationed at it. They couldn't plausibly deny that they had done that. So they have to come up with some other explanation. But what we know is that up until this point, verses 62 to 66, Matthew and the religious leaders agree on the story. So these are agreed upon facts up to this point. Now where the stories diverge is in chapter 28, verses 11 to 15. The other side of Matthew's reliability of the resurrection sandwich. So let's look at what Matthew tells us in verses 11 to 15. He tells us that the plan does backfire. There's an earthquake, a great earthquake, because this angel comes down. And then the angel rolls back the stone himself, revealing an empty tomb. And at the presence of the angel, all these soldiers are so terrified that they fall down in great fear. And then... Some women are there. The angel has an exchange with them, shows them the empty tomb, and they're on their way. The dust settles. The guards get up, scrape themselves off, are feeling pretty stupid about what just happened. And then maybe they draw straws. Who's going to go tell the chief priests what just happened? So a handful of them sheepishly make their way back to the chief priests. And like faithful soldiers, they report exactly what happened. Now, by this point in Matthew, we know that the religious leaders have no concern for the truth of the matter. That's not what they're trying to get after. They have a position to protect. They have a reputation to preserve. And they have a tight, albeit man-made, theological system to defend. Like many religious leaders since then, they cannot let a little bit of truth spoil all the good they are doing. So they meet together and they come up with a plan. They have to do it in some, with some haste. There is an open tomb and nobody in it and we need to come up with something quick. So they come up with this solution. Let's get as much money as we can together. Because, hey, money's been solving our problems so far. Money will be the answer to our problems here. Again, corrupt religious leaders have done that over and over since then. So they pay the soldiers hush money. Now, it would have had to have been a very sufficient or a sufficient enough sum of money for them to be able to claim that they had fallen asleep. Because for a soldier of that era to have fallen asleep on the job would have been an extremely shameful admission. Imagine today a high school teacher admitting to having a romantic relationship with one of his students. It's something you simply, it's something you simply don't do, right? All your training has told you you don't do that. 
everyone in the public knows that if that's your job to be a teacher, you don't do that. And to admit it is to admit you failed at your job and most likely it will cost you your job. And that's how it would have been then for those soldiers. If they were Roman soldiers, they could have even been put to death for sleeping while on guard. And so when it says there in verse 12, a sufficient sum of money, we're talking about a large amount. And notice, they're not content simply to get paid. They have another concern, the matter of Pilate. What if Pilate finds out that we were sleeping when we were supposed to be doing our jobs? Once the, quote, superintendent finds out what we're claiming to have done, we'll be in a heap of trouble. Well, the Jewish leaders say, we will make sure to satisfy Pilate too. Perhaps with a similar monetary payout or some sort of political trade-off. What a horrible, diabolical mess. I mean, this is wickedness. It's wickedness upon wickedness. Here, they know now, they know that the greatest news in history has just occurred. It's unfolded before their very eyes. And they are doing whatever they can to make sure that people don't find out. And they are willing to lie. They're willing to bribe. And they're willing to do whatever they need to do to keep the news of the resurrection from spreading. I think it's obvious that their plan was made in haste. I mean, just consider the plausibility. So you got a group of cowering disciples who are scared to death and scattered. And all of a sudden they get this idea, gather their courage to come in the middle of the night to go and and steal the body from the tomb against this armed guard and the sealed rock. And they walk up at night and happen to find every one of the soldiers sound asleep. So sound asleep that you can unseal the tomb, move the whole rock, and make off with the body without any of them waking up. I mean, it, it defies credibility, right? No wonder Christianity spread in the early days. You read Matthew's account here of what happened, and you hold that up against the theory being put forth by the religious and political leaders of that day. And I think you're inclined to find Matthew's explanation more plausible. Now, I want, I want you to think about this for a little bit. I want you to kind of go back to what I was talking about, how Matthew's writing into a situation. Again, I know some of you are here still deliberating in your minds about the claims of Christ. Again, you might claim to be a Christian kind of on the exterior. I'm maintaining that, but inside, these are things you're grappling with. Or maybe you're just honest. This is, this is my struggle. I'm here. I know somebody. I'm impressed with what's going on in their life. And I want to come and see what's going on. 
Now, the fact that Matthew needs to include these two sections, again, shows that there were varying explanations circulating as to why there was an empty tomb. Again, they agreed up to the point of verse 66. In fact, I think we can say they agree that the tomb is empty. The question has never been, is there an empty tomb where Jesus of Nazareth was first placed? The only question was, why was the tomb empty? So, consider the answer to that question from a Christian perspective. A man comes along who changes the course of history, who claims himself to be a messianic figure, one who is bringing in a good kingdom, a savior of the world. That's what he claims to be. His life matches up with all sorts of varying prophecies that were made long ago. But he says, the way I'm going to bring in my kingdom is not through military rule. I'm actually going to do it by dying and conquering sin and death by rising up. Then consider that that man's tomb, after he's dead, is empty. Again, his critics and his proponents agree on that, as does history. Think about it. At any point in those early years, all anybody had to do to end Christianity was to be able to show Jesus' burial plot and to show there's a body in there. And Christianity's over. The teeth is taken out of it, just like that. But it couldn't be done. So it wasn't. One scholar states, no early writer, Jew, Greek, or Roman, ever identifies a tomb in which Jesus' body remained. Now consider that the apostles gave their whole lives to telling people the story of a resurrected Christ. Now, I think we all understand that people can be brainwashed into some system of belief and be willing to give their lives even to sacrifice their lives for that cause. You don't have to look very far with the jihadists and what they're doing. But the question is, would people give their lives for something that they know to be a lie? And not just a few of them, but every single apostle to a man. I mean, if only one had cracked, if only one had admitted that it was an elaborate plot, then the whole thing was up. But every single one maintained that they'd actually seen the resurrected Christ and died as a result of that claim. And look what they benefited from that. Like, they didn't become wealthy. In fact, when they retold the story, they didn't retell it with themselves as heroes. They weren't faithful to him, standing by his side. They they showed all their warts and all their problems and showed it was only after they saw the resurrected Christ that things had changed. And you can say, well, but look at the standing it gave them. They were so respected. Read the book of 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter. 
He's talking about how everyone's abandoning him. He asks, bring my cloak and my books. I'm alone here in prison. Look, for the first couple of centuries, to embrace the claims of a resurrected Christ only meant that you'd be tortured, disowned, put in prison, set back in society. It benefited you nothing. And the message of a resurrected person would have been more unbelievable then to those ears even then to our ears today because Jewish, Greek, and Roman cultures all would have found the idea of a resurrection incredulous. Now, if you're going to fabricate a story, at least do two things. Make sure that the people, the, the initial witnesses are as credible as possible, right? Preferably some sort of religious or political leader, some trusted member of society. And secondly, make sure you give a riveting account of the actual body of Jesus rising up, passing through the grave clothes, being transformed from its physical body to its spiritual body and all the rest. As we'll see in a moment, they fail on both those accounts. Again, I think lending credibility to their testimony and the fact that they tell it the way they do. So which is the more plausible account of the empty tomb? There, was a, there is a man named Lee Strobel. He was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And he was also a, uh, an avowed atheist. And he, was a, uh, he, he had his law degree from Yale. And uh, as, as it happened, his wife became a Christian. Now he's got all sorts of questions that he doesn't necessarily like answering. And so he thinks for a second, he says, I am a journalistic reporter. I've been trained in law. I'm just going to do a thorough investigation, as an investigative reporter would do, into the claims of Jesus and his resurrection. And that'll satisfy it. Well, he does that. And as he does interviews, as he tries to piece together everything they can from different sources, as he talks to people on both sides of the issue, he comes to the conclusion that Christ did rise. Which, as I said, changes everything. And so he embraces Christ and becomes one of the great spokesmen for the cause of Christ, even becoming a pastor and a traveling speaker. Now, you can approach the question like the Pharisees and religious leaders did. Resolved to disbelieve the resurrection regardless of where the facts take you. And if you approach it with that heart, I'm confident that you will be able to come up with some sort of explanation for the empty tomb and for what happened with Jesus. But I believe that if anyone approaches the question 
with a genuine openness to either possibility, that they'll find, that you will find that a resurrected, a bodily resurrected Christ is far and away the most plausible answer to all the data that's there. It's either true and it changes everything or it's not true. And that's why Matthew wants his readers to know that the resurrected Christ is a reality. And that is why he bookends his account of the resurrection by establishing its veracity over and against the competing claims of his day. And then in between those two bookends is his account of the resurrection in 28, 1 through 10. But even that is a bit unusual. I've already hinted at it a little bit. But the first thing is it doesn't describe Jesus' actual resurrection. He doesn't say how his body came back to life. He doesn't say how those grave clothes got put in order and folded. He doesn't say how he got out of the tomb. Did He doesn't give us any of that. Only things that people would have seen with their eyes. He describes what happens when the angel arrives, right? The earthquake, the rolling away the stone to reveal the empty tomb. But there's no account as to how Jesus rose. It's also unusual because it's so short. I mean, this is the climatic moment to which all of Matthew's been heading, right? And Matthew's been a long book. Some of you have been here since last fall. are going, yeah, it's a long book. Ten verses given to the resurrection. Third, it's unusual because of the witnesses that are chosen. Just Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Now Mary Magdalene, we know from elsewhere in the Bible, was had been possessed by demons for a good chunk of her life before Jesus deliver from delivers her from those demons. And the other Mary's called the other Mary. That's like when I go to a party and they're like, there's Karen's husband, right? Like, I'm here, but, you know, she's here. I'm just kind of the tag along, right? Now, Luke and John tell us of other witnesses to the empty tomb. Peter, John himself. But Matthew just leaves it at Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. It's particularly noteworthy when you consider how marginalized women were in those days. In fact, their testimony in a matter like this wouldn't have even permitted in a court of law. Yet Matthew makes them the key witnesses in his gospel. I'm not talking about manipulating facts. I mean, you could have just gone right to Peter and John and said, some women came, so Peter and John went and saw the empty tomb. You could have tried to build it on the soldiers, you know. But it's on the basis of Mary and Mary. So so Matthew is doing something with these ten verses. 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is trying to help us see something here about the resurrection. And I think, I think we figure it out when we see the two exchanges Mary and Mary have with the angel and Jesus, respectively. So, they walk in on this scene where the soldiers are trembling like dead men in fear because there's glowing supernatural presence. Just a little aside here, angels. People talk about seeing angels, visions of this or that. We have paintings of angels. In the Bible, anytime an angel is seen, people think they're going to die. All right? The only, and they, they feel that way until somebody says, don't be afraid. So if somebody's story of an angel doesn't involve, and I thought I was going to die, literally, then they're not talking about a real angel, okay? All right. So that's how they're all feeling. Women are there, also trembling in fear. Look at verse 5. The angel said to the women, here it is, do not be afraid, right? That's, okay, now they know. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Here's the great news. He is not here for he is risen. And then he says, come and see. So tomb closed, sealed, right? Angel shows up, rolls it away. First to break the seal. It's empty. Come and see. And then, verse 7, then go quickly and tell. Tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead and that he's going before them to Galilee. There you'll see him, see if I told you. So, come and see, go and tell, meet me at Galilee. You remember where Galilee is? It's called elsewhere in Matthew, Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, so this is not prime Jewish territory. That's where they're supposed to meet up. So they depart, right? Quickly. From the tomb with fear and great joy. And they're going to tell the disciples. Come and see, go and tell. But behold, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus meets them. I love the humanity of his greeting, right? Greetings. If you ever rise from the dead and meet a bunch of people, I guess that's what you say. They start worshiping him, holding onto his feet. But look at what Jesus says to them. Do not be afraid. Sound familiar? Go and tell my brothers. Sound familiar? To go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Sound familiar? Now, he doesn't have to say, come and see, because they're holding onto his feet, worshiping him. So that part's assumed. But he gives them the same message. Go and tell. 
Meet at Galilee. Come and see. Go and tell. Do you see what Matthew's doing? Bookends that say, it's true. It's true. It really is true, the resurrection. And then a story that invites these two women to come and see. See it's true. Hold his feet. And as a result of the knowledge that it's true, you are to go and tell. And you're to meet in Galilee, where this message can go to the nations. Come and see the reality of the resurrection. Go and tell the news of the resurrection and meet in a place where I can commission my my followers to bring this message to all nations. So he's telling me, he's telling you, It's true. Jesus rose from the dead. And then he's saying that now that you know it's true, now that I know it's true, we need to go and tell. Go and tell the nations. This is the news that is to be told. Amen. And so we think, praise the Lord, right, for for people like Conrado or Saloma. Or Ange Briggs over there, who are so good at going and making the good news known to people, right? But we also praise the Lord for people like that because it's not me, right? I'm too battered by life to make this message known. I'm not a credible witness. I'm not impressive. My speech is clumsy. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a quick thinker like that. I'm too timid. Hmm. You mean timid like the disciples who are cowering in fear and shame when the story began? Or do you mean you're not exactly star witness material? Perhaps you're marginalized in society? Perhaps like Mary Magdalene, you have a past? Perhaps in social settings, you rise no higher than the other Mary? Consider this. Consider this. I think that God chose to reveal His resurrection to Mary and Mary, not only to show that His kingdom turns the world's values on its head, which it does, but also to show you that that though society deems lesser are the very people God uses to grow His kingdom. Maybe this story is designed by God to show that the church spread not because its witnesses were so persuasive and profound, but because behind those witnesses is truth, the reality of the resurrection and the power that brings. Think about it. 
Our story began with these Jewish leaders up on top, thumping their chests, piling on, right? Let's set a guard and a seal on the tomb. Let's make sure this is squashed for good. But in God's providence, the very action that they're taking proves to be crucial in their undoing. The very thing they were trying to prevent ended up being validated by the actions they were taking. That's why the lie they're trying to prevent at the beginning is the lie they're purporting at the end. And then our story begins with a bunch of blue-collar, rugged men who are hiding and ashamed to be associated with Jesus. And what changes them? It's the truth of the resurrection and the power of the gospel. It's that that topples the Jewish leader's schemes. And it's the truth and the power of the gospel that revive the disciples. You don't need to be impressive. You don't have to have some carefully contrived, thought through plan on how to win the lost. Here's all you need to do come and see, go and tell. Testify to the reality of a resurrected Christ. If it's not true, if he didn't rise, we can close up shop. There's better things to do on a Sunday morning. But if he did rise on a Sunday morning, if he did rise from the dead, then this broken world that we live in doesn't have the last word. And our broken, corrupt natures Don't have the last word. Something greater is coming. Something that any of us can participate in through faith in Christ because Jesus paid the price for our sin. Jesus has risen from the dead. That's my hope. That is all. He did or he didn't. And I believe with all my heart that he actually rose from the dead. And if he did, it makes all the difference. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus Christ on the third day rose from the dead? Let's go and tell the world. Let's spread the message across the lands. And maybe let's start by telling our neighbor. Let's pray. Father, there is such good news. Let's not be like the, help us, Father, not to be like the Pharisees and the chief priests who actually muffled the message and tried to mute it. But help us to be like Mary and Mary, having no regard for our position, running about, 
telling people that Jesus is alive and all that that means for our world. Our world needs hope. The human heart needs hope and forgiveness. And Jesus brings that. May we be people who proclaim that here in 